Hi, everybody. It's the Beautiful Business Podcast. My name is Mark Butler. I am the host of this thing. And yeah, I want to start with a story today. In 2004, I was in college and I got a sales job. And it was at a coaching company of all things. At the time, I didn't know anything about coaching, didn't know what life coaching was, didn't know what online training was. That was still a very new world in 2004. And I got this sales job to try to make a little bit of money as a newly married person who was broke and in debt. And I got this sales job. And I remember I made $3,000 in my first week at this sales job, which to me was like a billion dollars. I had been working construction for the past three years making, I don't know, $750 to $10 an hour. And I got this sales job and made $3,000 in one week. And I, I just could not comprehend that. So I thought this was pretty amazing. And I spent about almost, almost four years at that company, ended up being a, a team leader. Uh, and then the company had me open my uh, sales office in another city. And that's where I spent my last year at the company. But it's relevant today's topic because now I have a one-on-one -on -one coaching business. And in this one-on-one -on -one coaching business, I won't do traditional sales calls where I, you know, set up a time and then we talk and then I have sort of my scripted or my formatted sales thing where I, you know, find their pain and then present my thing as the solution to that pain and then overcome their objections and then bring in the price and then, and then close. I don't do it and I won't do it. And it all starts with that sales job. I probably did a couple of thousand sales calls in the time I was at that company. And it really took a toll on me, frankly. The way that we did sales at that company was we called it a two-part sale. This is not this is not you know unheard of. Many of you may have uh, experienced this kind of sales process in different contexts. It was a two-part sale. When I was uh, in the early my early years at that job, I would make the call to the person who had filled out whatever form online or whatever it was, and I would do sort of the intake. But the intake was designed to create a very specific psychological and emotional experience for the prospect, so that they would be prepared to speak to the closer. So I was the person who was sort of setting things up and then the closer would close the sale. Nothing inherently wrong with that, except that there were some half truths or what I now consider to be half truths baked into the whole process. And a half truth is just not a truth. It's a lie. There's, there was just deception built into the whole process, in my opinion. I think other people would disagree with me, but in my opinion, there was deception built into the sales process. And not only that, but there was, there was sort of fake urgency built into the sales process. You know, we would do things like, oh, we can work with a yes and we can work with a no, but we can't work with a maybe. The prospect might say, well, can I go think about it? No, you can't. You have to say yes or no right now. The prospect would say, well, can I go talk to my spouse about it? Well, why isn't your spouse on the call right now? Let's get them on the call. Or if they, well, no, my spouse isn't here. They can't get on the call. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go then. Why? Why did we do all of that? Well, in my opinion, we did it because the product was inferior and the product couldn't hold up to a good night's sleep. And 
uh, a conversation with a spouse. That's how fragile that sale was. So the sales process had to sort of play on the, the hopes and the fears of the prospect in order to get them to purchase. Now, 12, 13 years removed from this since I quit that company, have I dramatized it in my mind? Probably. I'm, of course, I'm bringing some of my own emotion. I'm bringing sort of a, there's some revisionist history going on here. But I can tell you that the day I quit that job, I went home and cried, which I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, I guess, out loud. But the over, I remember the very last sales call I did. And, and I was a sales office manager at the time. And I was still doing the occasional sales call. I did the sales call with a person who, whose intention was to set up an internet business. And I'm the closer in this case, and it's my job to bring her into the program. And as I'm talking with her, I found out, find out she doesn't have a computer. She does not own a computer and her intention is to start an internet business. Oh, well, we had our standard uh, uh, way to overcome that concern. Do you have a local library? We would say, which is so ridiculous in hindsight. I can barely say it out loud. Oh yeah, I do have a local library. I can head right down there and I can, I can work from there. <laughs> uh, okay. So she, so she ended up signing up and I do remember sort of doing everything in my power to talk her out of it without saying the words, I will not take your money. She still wanted to do it and thank the heavens above the next day. She called back and exercised her three day right of rescission and she canceled. And the relief that I felt when she canceled was the entire it was all the information that I needed that I, I felt like I had moved into territory that was not in line with my supposed ethics and values. And it was time to be done. Now, did I have the courage to walk out the door in that moment? No, I don't think I did have that courage. I think I continued to be a sales manager in that company for a few more months. This, you may not be shocked to hear that my sales office started to do really horribly with me at the helm given how I was feeling about the thing. And so I've had to sort of do my own reckoning of, of, of all of my ethics at that time, including how I was treating the company, how I was treating my team members, and of course, how I was treating these prospects. But to walk away from that was a massive relief to me, a massive relief. And sometimes I've thought to myself that in the years since, I've, I think I've been a little bit of an underpricer Maybe not all my clients would agree with that, but I think my wife has certainly accused me over the years of, uh, she'll say, you just don't charge enough for anything that you do. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. But sometimes I wonder if maybe some part of me is still trying to do some penance for those four years. I don't know. I'll work this out with my therapist and my life coach. But here's how it relates to today's conversation. I don't do sales calls anymore. It may be that I just plain old ran out of gas for that kind of conversation after doing it a couple of thousand times between 2004 and 2000, uh, late 2004 and early 2008. But also I think I developed a pretty severe allergy to any approach, any persuasive approach that seemed to me to involve playing on uh, trying to manipulate the emotional state of the person I'm talking to and then trying to play off that emotional state for my own gain. 
And so I just won't do it anymore. In fact, I, I, I really do think that to some extent, this is now to my detriment. But that's debatable. It's also debatable because I feel pretty good about where my, my coaching practice is. But I tell that story in part because I want you to know that that's sort of that introduces my experience and my bias. So as you listen to this, you can say, okay, he's coming at this from that perspective. It's not the only perspective I bring to this, but it's, it's included. And so as you take this with your own grains of salt, you should include that in your, in your evaluation of, of what I'm about to tell you today, but I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't have these traditional sales calls. Let's talk about something that I call the journey to yes. The journey to yes starts when someone, so there's a, a total stranger to you. They don't know you or your work at all, and they become introduced to you and your work. That's where they start the journey to yes. And of course, the end of the journey to yes is uh, you inviting them to work with you and them saying yes, and then they're putting their credit card number into a website or however you do it. That's the end of the journey to yes. Well, what's in between the introduction and the payment is them coming to know you, like you, and trust you in the context of the problems that they're trying to solve in their life. And then you extending an invitation for them to work with you. These are the components of the journey to yes, no, like trust and an invitation. If we go back to my experience selling coaching in those early days, the journey to yes relied mostly on this two-part sales process. The job of that two-part sales process was to get them through the no, like, and trust to extend the invitation and then to invite them in. So all of that happened usually in the course of one 20 to 30 minute phone call followed by one 30 to 50 minute phone call. So the whole journey to yes was handled inside of two relatively short phone calls. Now there was a lead generation process behind the scenes in that company where some of the no like and trust we were borrowing the credibility of sort of our lead partners. So we would reference the lead partner. And, and now I look back and say, oh, the, the reason we were referencing the lead partner's credibility, some famous author or whoever it was who'd partnered with my company. The reason we were doing that is because we were trying to move them down, move them along the, the journey to yes. And it was true that there were certain lead partners where the leads were much better because there was more trust built into that name. But still, to have them go from sort of knowing us and barely being introduced to the idea of coaching to paying us thousands and thousands of dollars was handled mostly in two short phone calls. And I've heard of, of many new life coaches who are signing up for programs where the prescription is not too different from what I just described. We might call them mini sessions. We might call them... Uh, strategy sessions, we might call them consultations, but the essence of the, of the advice is you need to use this one call to do most of the work of, of moving the client toward yes. And I've heard, I don't have any personal experience with these programs, but I've heard from friends and from clients that there are prescriptions, recipes, where you're being told to, okay, here's how you do, here's, here's the structure of the sales call. And here's how to make sure that they're connecting with their pain. And here's how to make sure that they're connecting with your solution. 
And then here's how you overcome their objections. And then here's how you close. If you just take one step back, you realize, oh, all of that structure is designed to move them from uh, wherever they are on the, on the journey to yes, which is in this case, probably not very far. And then to move them the rest of the way in 20 to 40 minutes. And it does quote unquote work in that we have stories of coaches who are signing clients with this as their approach. My experience in talking to people who are using that kind of approach is that the, the coach who's using this structure feels a high degree of stress and anxiety before and during and after one of these calls. There's so much tension built into trying to compress the journey to yes into 20 to 40 minutes. Because of human nature, because of human relationships, if someone meets me and then within a relatively short period of time, 30 or 40 minutes is asking me to make a significant commitment to them, all the sort of alarm bells are going off in my mind because humans are good at, or at least we have a lot of practice in saying, I don't know you well enough to be this intimate with you yet. And to pay someone thousands of dollars to work on my mental health or, or whatever I'm doing in a coaching experience is a very intimate thing. So in order to get past those natural alarm bells that are going on, I have to have this highly structured sales conversation that is designed to quiet those alarm bells just enough to get them to yes. But inside myself, when I'm doing that, my own alarm bells are going off because I know that I would be uncomfortable if someone were trying to, if someone were asking such an intimate and significant commitment from me in such a short period of time. So I'm having to also simultaneously sort of squash my internal alarms while I'm trying to squash their internal alarms. And the whole thing is just stressful on average. I, I got to be careful with my generalizations. I do believe that on average, the whole thing is pretty stressful for all involved in those, in those moments where it's not very stressful for all involved. It's because there is a pre-existing relationship that has moved someone significantly toward yes, before the call started. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how my sales strategy at the moment is someone emails me and says, do you have availability? And then I say, yes, or I say, I will in February or March. And then they say, okay, I would love to talk about coaching. And then I send them an email back that says, great, I would love to talk to you about coaching. Here's what I need you to know up front. And then I give them all the details of my coaching, the, the highest, the high level notes. I meet this often. Uh, here's how long the sessions last. Here's how, how we handle reschedules. Um, there's no program or agenda. This is just about a conversation between two people. And here's the price. If these, if these notes seem like they could be a good fit for you, let's set up a time to talk. This is my sales strategy. Not everyone says, yeah, that sounds great. Let's set up a time to talk. But virtually everyone who sets up a time to talk ends up becoming my client. 
So I don't ever think about close rates because my close rate in the, I mean, it's not even a term that I use. I don't like how, I just, I don't like how it feels by the way, but if I were even looking at things that way, my close rate would approach 100%. And that's how I want to do business. That's how I want to do business. Now, does this maximize my income? I don't think it does. But I'm not sure. It might. It might. These things are hard to know. But I think a person who thinks of their business more mathematically than, than I do, meaning they set specific goals of numbers of clients, and then they back those into the numbers of consultations with a certain expected close rate, and then et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that could be the way to maximize income. I'm not certain, but I think it could be the way to maximize income. But I also happen to believe it's the way to maximize stress. And I'm just not, I won't do it at this point. I was, as I thought about this call, I thought to myself, well, it's easy for you to say, Mark, I said to myself, because you're not in dire need of the money. This isn't a, a matter of whether or not you make next month's mortgage payment. It's not a matter of whether your kids, your wife and kids eat. So it's easy for you to take this, you know, I'm Mr. Laid back. I'm Mr. Cool. I'm Mr. Casual sales guy. It's easy for you to say. And then I think to myself, well, not really. I mean, well, two thoughts. Number one, this money does pay my mortgage. So <laughs> this actually does pay my bills. Um, Number two, I don't know personally, I don't know anyone who in the coaching game, in, in my, in my network, whose coaching business is the deciding factor of, of whether or not they buy groceries for the vast majority of us, of us, this ends up being a second income business. So we have a spouse that makes money and then we're doing this sort of as an additional thing. Now that's not everybody, but I do think it's, it's what I'm most accustomed to running into. So I'm not, I'm not used to running across anybody who's in desperate need of the money and therefore has to have this more aggressive approach to sales. But here's the other thing that I realized. If it were a question of whether or not there would be groceries in my fridge, I would still not approach a coaching business that way. I would just go get a job. And I, I, I can tell you, I sat with this idea. I sat with it for a good while. And I thought, is that true? Would you actually go seek employment to avoid this structured, in my opinion, manipulative pressure and stress-filled approach to selling coaching? Would you really go seek a job to avoid doing that? And the answer is yes. It's not worth it to me. It's not what I want to be when I grow up. I just don't want to do that. It doesn't, to me, it does not feel good to engage with other human beings this way. The reason this episode came about is that yesterday I was talking with a coaching client. We were talking about inventory and she was telling me that as she looks at her year, she, she has to allocate a certain number of hours per month to sales calls because she has a good sense of her close rate 
And she's realizing that those sales calls actually compete with, well, of course, with free time, but also with time that she could be spending with paid clients. And she said something like, how are you thinking about this? And I said, oh, you're forcing me to admit that I won't do sales calls. I won't allocate time for them. I just won't. Because as I think about inventory, as I think about mapping out my year, I do not want to look at my calendars and say this many hours per month are dedicated to conversations whose outcome I'm not clear on. Or better said, who's, I don't want to dedicate hours per month to an activity that's not fun for me, that's not enjoyable, it's not meaningful for me to do a sales song and dance for a prospective client. That might be my ego. I've been thinking about how much of my ego is involved in this whole thing, and it's definitely a factor. My ego is triggered by the idea of showing up to a call and having to do the song and dance and like read the script and, and the whole thing. My ego is triggered by that. I'm just like, no, I'm just, I'm, I've decided I'm too good for that apparently. And that's ego and ego may not serve me, but it's part of this. You've got the ethical considerations. You've got the ego considerations. You've got the time considerations that I just don't want to spend time that way. And all of that adds up to. If I'm going to have a coaching business, apparently I'm only willing to do it where either someone emails me and says, do you have availability? I'd like to work with you. Or, and this is another way that I love to bring clients into my business. I send a, a person that I like and trust an email or a video and say, Hey, I just want to let you know, I don't know what your plans are in 2023, but I would love to work with you. I would love to coach you. And so if that would appeal to you at all, you just let me know when the time comes and I leave it there. And, you know, a percentage of those people are never going to reply. No problem. A percentage of those people are going to reply and say, oh, actually, I've already got my, I've got, a, I've got my stuff I'm already planning for the year. So I don't, I don't think it's really going to fit in this year. No problem. And then a percentage will reply and say, that sounds amazing. What, what are, what does it look like? What should we do? And then I send them an email that says, well, here's the highlights, price, structure, all of that. If that sounds like it's a fit, let's have a call. Let's talk about whether you're excited about this. And then, you know, a hundred percent of those people end up becoming clients because I put all these hurdles in the way of that phone call in the first place. If they've cleared all those hurdles, by the time they get themselves onto that call, the decision's made for both of us. I, I, at that point, don't have to wonder whether I'm going to be excited to work with this person and they don't have to wonder whether they can quote unquote afford it. They don't have to wonder what the price is. We're just basically celebrating the yes together on that call and we're onboarding pretty much. We're onboarding. How big of a factor is it that the clients I typically work with are coaches? I think it's a big factor. It annoys me when people in my position pretend that this applies, this, these kinds of ideas apply universally because it is easier to sell a co sell coaching to a coach. Of course it is. Who is more converted than anyone to coaching coaches? 
with the rare exception of the person who's not a coach, but has been working with a coach for months or years and can then say, oh, I'll always have a coach. That's going to be an easy sale too. But for the most part, the person who's most excited about coaching is a coach. So when I'm thinking about the journey to yes, and I'm thinking about the no like, and trust process, a coach does not have the, the question of what is this? I've never bought something like this before. Will it benefit me? Do I have better alternatives? They're just thinking, yeah, I'm a coach. I love coaching. I'm looking for my next coach. Yep. This is the, this is the guy. Great. So yeah, I think my job's easier in that sense. I do have clients who are not coaches who, who have bought, who have bought my coaching in the same way, but I want to acknowledge that if your prospective clients are not coaches, you have a, probably have a little more work to do on the journey to yes. The work will be helping them see themselves inside a coaching relationship so that there's so that they're not having this objection of what is this will i like it will i be glad i did it will i regret having done it people are are regret avoiders so in the journey to yes i've got to help those people who aren't coaches get some sense that they're not going to regret doing this i can do that with a short non-transactional phone call or, or call where we just chat and I let them experience my coaching. It could be longer too. It could be an hour. It could be two hours. So that by the end of this, by the end of that engagement, they're saying, Oh, I do like this. I like this conversation. And sometimes they'll even confirm with you. Oh, is, so is this what it's like? Yep. This is what it's like. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I, I like this then we're ready to move closer to that invitation. I think content is very powerful. It's very important to this process. I think it's episode, uh, I think it's episode four of this podcast uh, where I talk about content, the role of content in a one-on-one -on -one coaching business. And I've had to admit to myself that I rely heavily on content to move people toward yes. I want content to do the vast majority of the work of know, like, and trust so that by the time we're actually engaging with each other, either by email or in a, in a converse, in a, an actual conversation, I'm mostly just taking orders. They're mostly just saying, you know, when and how do we get started? I'm relying on the content to help them know me, like me, and trust me within the context of the problems they're trying to solve. And it's after listening to my content that they're emailing and saying, hey, do you have availability? So the skill, when you're thinking about skill building, it kind of breaks my heart to hear people you know, thinking along these lines and saying, oh, I'm going to build a, you know, my journey to yes is this funnel thing click an ad, read a free PDF, whatever, you know, schedule a sales call, do the sales call. That's my journey to yes. Okay. Okay. It can work. I don't have any personal experience with it, but I, I know it can work. 
No, my thought is more, I want to build the skill of persuasive, resonant content creation, which in 2023, I think looks mostly like podcasting, maybe YouTube, maybe, maybe video on social, whether that's Instagram or maybe TikTok. I, I don't, I don't do TikTok, so I'm very ignorant of that platform. But I think it's more video than it is writing in 2023. 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, it would have been like, yep, write amazing content on your blog. That's or that's that's 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago now. In 2023, the skill is do I have the ability to be persuasive and resonant in audio and in video primarily? See, I don't want part of this, whether it's ego, whether it's laziness or whether it's real savvy, I, I don't know. But part of this is I don't want a complex environment in my business. I don't want to be like, and then twice a month I do this special training and then that leads them to this other thing. And the people who click that get added to this other list. I don't want all this complexity. I want to talk into this microphone for about an hour a week. And then I want people to send me an email asking if I have availability. I want that to be my whole business plan. I'm, I feel very fortunate that currently my inventory is nearly sold out and I'm probably going to add inventory because I'm getting that itch just based on that approach. I talk into this microphone for about an hour a week and then people email me and ask if I have availability or I send some of the people who I know have engaged with this content and say, hi, I would love to work with you. If that's of interest, ping me. I want that to be the whole business plan. My last thought is, it's worth, what am I trying to say? If you do the hard mental and emotional work of, of trying to build your business in a way that is that simple. And it's, I'm not pretending it's easy and I'm not pretending I just walk around like, Oh, I'm so Zen. I'm, I'm an anxious person. You know, I, I eat my feelings. I do, I do all the things, right. I'm not pretending that it's just like, Oh, this is easy street. But the hard work of this approach is mental, emotional and being patient and gardening, planting seeds, watering those seeds, and then trusting that they're going to bear fruit. That's hard work mentally and emotionally. But if you will do it, then you will never introduce the complexity into your business that will make your business hard perpetually. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say you do set up a more complex system for bringing clients into your business. If you ever get exhausted by the complexity of that system, but it is apparently working, you will feel terrified of changing that system because you will not have perfect clarity on which parts of the, of the complex system actually move the needle in your business. So when you're saying, I just don't want to do that anymore, you won't know for sure that you can bail on that and not have it hurt you. So there will be this fear of change. Whereas if you, if you start the simpler way and you say, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work or not. And I think it's going to take patience, but I'm going to talk into a microphone and I'm going to wait for people to email me, or I'm going to send them invitations, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to try to generate my own conversations. 
If you go that route, then your business never has to be complicated. It never has to wear you out. It never has to leave you wondering whether you can simplify, whether you can slow down. Because there's nothing, there's nothing to simplify. There's nothing to cut. There's no, there's no complex software to cancel or deconstruct. There's no, there's no crazy funnel flow chart that you're trying to pick parts out of. There's just connecting people, connecting with people in person, connecting with people asynchronously through your content, trying to become as resonant and persuasive as you can through those medium, through that kind of medium. And then, and then them reaching out to you and you reaching out to them to try to start relationships. That's the game. I think that kind of business is more appealing than the alternative. Unless you're trying to make $10 million. If you're trying to make $10 million, none of this applies. All right, let's chat for a few minutes. Who has who has questions, concerns, objections? Who thinks that all sounds great, but it's impossible? Good. I've been perfectly persuasive, as usual. Just kidding. Nobody has objections. Nobody has questions. Nobody wants to chat about this. The listeners will thank us for the nice short episode. I have a question for you, Mark. Uh, is that Brooke? Yeah. Hi, Brooke. Hi. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? Like, don't have a podcast, don't have an email list, don't have like that type of way to like put your voice out there mostly just Instagram. That's why I've been getting clients. So. No. Oh, okay. So you do have, you have Instagram. Yeah. Right. But just wondering like, how do you get from that to get people like, I love your business model. Like does that, does that have to be complex? It doesn't have to be funnels and lead magnets and all those things that can just be a conversation, but how do you get to that point of skipping the sales calls, just creating really, persuasive content and like content people resonate with. Yeah. There's this big black box uh, built into my philosophy here. Isn't there? There's like, so what are you saying? You're just saying you publish stuff and then uh, requests for coaching just appear out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just takes and, time. And yeah, it takes time. And, and the truth is if the requests aren't coming, that's information right? It's information about the resonance or lack of resonance in the message. Yeah. So for some people, I would, if I, if somebody were to tell me, oh, I've been podcasting regularly, I podcast, you know, I publish every week. I've been publishing every week for two years and nobody's emailing me asking for coaching. Yeah. That's a tough moment because you have to say, yeah, you're not resonating. Gotcha. You're not, you're yeah. not, you're not resonating. Yeah, I feel like it's like they're trickling in and it's working, but just curious if like, do you ever, is there a difference between like a sales call and just like free coaching? Like, is that a thing? Great question. And yes, in my opinion, there is a difference because I am happy to do free coaching. And at the moment, I feel like I have less and less time for it because my inventory has fella. mostly been occupied by clients, what up, fella? but I 
I do, I'm it, just yesterday, I had a call with a person who'd signed up for, she'd signed up. I had these free 40 minute calls that were available somewhere on my email list. I think she signed up. I'm happy to do that call because I know what the call is. The call is a coaching experience. And I also have a lot of confidence that at the end of that call, if any part of her already knows about coaching and, and is and is interested in coaching, she's going to bring it up. And lo and behold, at the end of that call, she said, so by the way, where do I find out about what it's like to work with you one-on-one? -on -one? And in that moment, I said, oh, I'll just tell you, here's the price. Uh, here's how I work. So yeah, if that's ever appealing to you, just shoot me an email and we'll chat. I'm happy to do those calls because those aren't song and dance calls. Those aren't sales calls. Those are calls where I'm actually having a coaching experience with a client, which is the call that I, the conversation I want to have. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And that resonates so much better than like, I can definitely relate to the song and dance. It's like, I just want to, you know, provide value and service. And that means they just want some questions answered and for the free coaching. Great. And they're on their way and they got, what they wanted, or if it's like, huh, that's interesting. I now I want, cause my, niche is more in the, like the macros and nutrition and hmm. uh, weightlifting mm -hmm. side. So it's not, like you said, it's not people that are already familiar with coaching. So even just helping them know where to start and what to like, you know, work up to and get going on their journey. And if that's just me answering a question and being of service, that feels good to me versus like, well, if you want me to tell you anything first, pay me. Yeah. Or, um, you know, Alternatively, if a client's reaching out to you and and they have a sort of attitude of like, well, I'm, you know, I'm sort of shopping. I'm shopping for a coach. I'm talking to three different coaches right now about the possibility of working together. My attitude in that situation, and again, there may be too much ego at play here. I'm going to be like, cool, you should definitely hire one of those other two coaches. If you're looking at three and I'm one of them, I want you to hire one of the other two because I don't do shopping clients because it starts the relationship off on a on, um, on the wrong foot. It starts the relationship off where I had to on in any way persuade them to work with me. And then when I've fallen into that, I find myself having to persuade them through the entire relationship. So I won't do it. Like I'm look, if somebody's like, I'm looking for a life coach, I'm like, cool, keep looking. <laughs> Hope it goes great for you. Or my, in my case, cause I'm a dude, my favorite is I'm looking for a life coach for my husband. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, you need one. Second, have your husband send me a message. So anyway, I just won't, I, I'm not willing to play those games, but for people who are like, okay, but what do I do? Go have conversations with people. Put a certain number of hours in your calendar, two, three, five, one, I don't care. And fill that hour with conversation. And get better at that, get better at those conversations, become a better listener, become a more interested person and a more interesting person through those conversations. Let the, let the transactions um, come naturally from the quality of those conversations and let the quality of your content improve as a result of those conversations. To me, there's nothing sadder than a person who is trying to publish a podcast every week or a newsletter every week, who is not actively engaged with the people they're trying to serve. So all they can do is regurgitate content from other people. 
they're so well-meaning. They know that they're supposed to be publishing, but they also deep down know that they don't have anything to say because they're not engaged with the people they're trying to serve. So that's not going to be resonant content. If I'm saying the same thing in the same way to the same person at the same time as a person who has more clout, more followers, who is more the author of the ideas that I'm sharing, why would anyone engage with me? I'm just amplifying their message and, and sending people to them. I need to go have conversations that cause me to have my own take, that help me have my own take. Then I can share that take. Then that's resonant. Then people are emailing and saying, do you have availability? It's hard work. It's hard work. Um, to something you said earlier, Brooke, like, uh, you know, I don't have a podcast. I don't have an email list. Yeah, I would encourage you to make those things a priority. I, I would encourage anyone who doesn't have an email list to say, I will have a hundred names on an email list in the next four weeks. And my aunt is going to be on there and my college roommate is going to be on there and my brother-in-law is going to be on there and I'm going to send them messages. And I'm going to like, hi, I'm starting a thing and I have a newsletter. Will you read my newsletters? Yes, I will because we're related. Get a hundred names on that list start to message them so that you then are in motion. And then as you're trying to produce that content, base each message on something real world, some experience you had in the previous week. Now it becomes this catalyst where I know, okay, I'm going to publish on Thursday. I got to have something to say. I need to go have a conversation with somebody. That then can create a virtuous, uh, a virtuous cycle. And it's the same with a podcast. I would encourage people to, start a podcast and give themselves permission to publish 10, 20, 30 episodes and then delete them because they suck. That's fine. And if they don't suck, great, but they might because before we're good at things, we're bad at them. And so, yeah, like publish 10, 20, 30 episodes and then just delete them wholesale. Cause who cares? Practice, practice. It's a skill building exercise. Yeah, I like that. I think it's just like that clarity of do I spend my time putting out content or do I spend time in, like you said, that connections, hopping off phone calls, getting clear on like what's what's their challenge, what's coming up for them, what's keeping them from getting the results they want and getting really clear on the words they're using, what they're you know resonating with so that you can have something to say. So I see how it's like a circle of like you talk to people, you understand them, where they're coming from, use that to create the content. And as that content resonates, it gives you more conversations. That's it. I do have an email list. I just don't ever send newsletters because it's like, I don't know what to say. Well, but you are having conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So my prompt for you is I was talking to a client this week. That's the prompt. I was yeah. talking to a client this week. Here's what she's frustrated with. We always got to be respectful of privacy. We got to respect the client relationship. So if there's anything in that message that we feel like we need to run past that client, we do. Yeah. But the best prompt I could give any coach is I was talking with someone this week, or I was talking with a client this week, and this is the frustration they shared. And here's how I think about that frustration. Yeah. Like that makes it a little simpler. Short too. 200 words, 200 word newsletter doesn't have to be long. In fact, I think it's not, I think it's advantageous for it to not be super long. That's my opinion, but more likely to read it. It's short, way more likely to read it. My open rate on my emails, however reliable this is, it hovers in the 67% range. And 
I think partly that's because there's a contract that I have. It's a, it's an implied contract, but there's a contract that I have with my reader where I, they, they promise to read and I promise to send them 250 word messages that sometimes make them laugh, sometimes have something interesting in them. And that's the contract. And I really try not to break that contract. And part of the contract I'm, I'm much, I'm getting much better at this is they know that on Thursday nights at eight o'clock mountain time, that email is going to land in their inbox. So we have this, we have this relationship with each other where I send them 250 words, they read it. Sweet. Thanks for your questions, Brooke. Yeah. And nice to meet you. I don't think we've ever talked before. Anybody else? I have a question. Yeah. Hi, Melissa. Hi. So I'm struggling a little bit with the non-transactional idea when you're um, just having conversations, mm -hmm. but then you, you do want to talk about what you do and working that in and not feeling like you're making it a transactional thing. So if you have a desire to make it transactional, it is transactional and that, and that's okay. Um, but if you're in that conversation and any part of your brain power is, is directed toward how do I smoothly mention my coaching? How do I, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing, Melissa, but that's a person could do that. Um, you know, how do I turn this toward, how do I turn this toward working with me? If your brain is there, you're, you're in a transactional conversation. So the work, and, and I believe this is hard work. I think it's a skill to be built. I think it's a habit to be formed is to stay totally present with the person in the conversation, listening to the, listening to them talk about, about their challenges and to stay completely present in that and bring your best self to that conversation. And then at the end of the conversation to allow the conversation to end. See, I, and I can, you know, I have business coaches in my ear right now. I can hear them saying, oh, that you'll never make any money. You'll never make any money if you do that. Hmm. I don't know. I make money. I do truly have the experience of people at the end of a call where I had no transactional intent whatsoever, where they do say, so what, what do you do? Do you, do you like work with people one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. Oh yeah, I do. I work with people one-on-one. -on -one. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to reach out to you about that sometime. Okay. Sounds great. You got my email address? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Be in touch. Hope it goes well with X, Y, and Z. Whatever we talked about that day. The end. Now, might I reach out to them weeks or months later and just say, hey, how are you? Any update on XYZ that we talked about three months ago? Then maybe a conversation sparks back up. Or maybe a day, a week, a month later, they email me and say, I keep thinking about that conversation we had. What does it look like to, to, to work with you? What does it look like to have more of those conversations? It was really helpful. 
or I get an email from their friend, from their brother-in-law, from their cousin, from their coworker that says, so-and-so who I've forgotten because we talked six months ago, so-and-so told me I should definitely reach out to you. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of patience. I think it takes a lot of uh, confidence. And again, like I admitted earlier, I'm not sure this is the way to absolutely maximize income. But I will say this, Melissa, it's my opinion that human beings are pretty good at reading each other. And if someone is talking with me and I am feeling an urgency or an anxiety about turning the conversation toward my services, turning the conversation in the direction of a transaction, I believe they can feel it. And I believe it is repellent to them. Does that mean I will have, I'm not avoiding a transactional conversation if they say, so what, like, what do you do? How do you work? How do you make money? Oh yeah. Happy to chat about that. But if I'm trying to manipulate the conversation in a transactional direction, I believe they can feel it. I believe it's repellent. And I think that that does cost people um, a lot of money. Yeah, I agree with that. And that is what prompted the question is just that when, when you're, I don't want that. I don't want people to be repelled. <laughs> and I think that's a lot of times the fear of getting out there is and talking about what you do because you don't want people to feel like you're looking for something from them or you want something from them. And there's sometimes a fine line between being passionate about what you're doing and telling people about it versus, you know, Hey, I need clients, you know? So, and, and it do, it does come sometimes from that place of, of desperation in you. And I have, realize the need to work on that kind of thing because you don't want to show up that in that mindset. So I think, I think as coaches have um, started out and there's this transactional thing always happening in your head, you know, of the things you've been talking about on the sales calls and it is a transaction and seeing people transactionally, it's hard to then pivot now to not thinking that way. And so um, you kind of slip back into it unconsciously because you've been hearing it for years, you know? And so now trying to think a different way, it is, it is difficult, but uh, I mean, I'm thankful that you're, you're presenting these ideas this way. But I think sometimes when I, when I sit down and I, I said, I do slip back into the transactional way of thinking of things. And so, so thank you because I think it, it is helping. So what I'm understanding now is that it's two separate things. When you say go and have conversations, you just mean listen. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's it. That's right. And listen, care. Yeah. And look for opportunities to serve. But that doesn't mean look for opportunities to make an offer. Looking for opportunities to serve can mean, hey, there's this book I love. Can I send it to you? Are you a reader? Like, what's your what's your format? Do you like Kindle? Do you like Audible? Like, what's your format? There's this book I'd love to share with you. 
or it's like, oh, you're not a reader. Okay. I've got, I've got like a, th- I found a three minute YouTube clip that summarizes my favorite book. I'm going to send you that clip. We were looking for opportunities to serve, not necessarily for opportunities to make offers. The offer is just the natural outgrowth of these high quality interactions that people have with us. You said something earlier, which I appreciate you bringing up when you said it's hard when you want to go out there and tell people about your work. I don't want to go out there and people tell people about my work and I feel no need to. I'm not, I'm not interacting with human beings out in the world saying, I I just want to tell them about my work. I'm interacting with human beings in the world saying, I wonder what they're up to. I wonder what they're struggling with. That's how I want to be in the world. Now, where am I telling people about my work here in this talking into this microphone? So it's not that I'm trying to hide. No, it's that I am publishing, but when I'm engaging with people, I'm listening. Now that's unless I've invited them to gather with me. Now, uh, this came to my head when I was talking with Brooke. Um, I really believe strongly that as coaches, we are wise to gather people to us and to gather people with gather with people. So it's going to our close, our group of friends or some family members and saying, I'm going to host a get together where we talk about uh, mental health or where we talk about um, physical health or we talk about relational health. And I would just love for you to come. And then we teach. So then we are sharing our work, but the contract is, it's clear you come to this thing, I'm going to share some information with you. So there's there's nothing gross happening there. There's nothing uh, deceptive happening there, is there? But if I just run into someone and we're talking and they say, oh, I'm just really struggling with X. And you're like, well, good news. I am a coach that helps with X. And I would be happy to tell you about my solutions. Now it's like, no, nah, you're just a creep. You're a weirdo. You're not doing that. I know you're not doing that. But but it's it's an instinct that some of us have. So we're just out in the world connecting with people looking for opportunities to have pure conversations where the person leaves saying man that was an enjoyable conversation that that person was so interesting that's it uh something you you were saying oh we're 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 constantly told to we're sort of given a transactional mindset we we have people modeling for us that money is the goal well, one of the things that we're missing in this whole in this whole paradigm is that the person, the new coach who thinks she wants money actually wants validation. She wants, con- or he, they want confirmation that they are doing something worthwhile, that they are worthwhile, and they believe that the best validation of their project and of themselves as human beings is money. And it turns out that money is really crappy validation. And also money is the last thing to arrive in a, in a, in a relationship. So if I have to have money in order to feel validated, I'm sort of constantly waiting for validation. But if I have a conversation like the one I did yesterday with a, a person who's not a client and may never become a client, I could just sit and enjoy that interaction with another human being, the connection, the resonance, I can enjoy it. And in feeling that goodness, I could say, this is just an amazing way to be in the world. And oh, by the way, I do like, I do like that it pays my bills. That's awesome. So those are some thoughts. Let's look for our validation elsewhere. 
primarily internally. And then we'll find it easier not to take such a transactional view of other human beings. Nice to talk to you as always. Thank you. Anybody else want to chat before we wind it down today? Okay. It's fun to be with you. Thanks for coming here and supporting me live. It means the world. You've given me an hour and that means a lot. Um, in, in, we're now on an every other week schedule between the beautiful business podcast and the money school podcast, which is kind of firing back up next week. And I don't do calls the fourth week of the month. So two weeks from now, there will be an episode, but it will not be a live session. It'll just appear in your podcast feed. Have an amazing week, folks. And um, go enjoy resonance with other human beings. See ya.